Ena mana, ena reo, ena iwi. Tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Sarah Daniel, tako ingoa, tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome to you all. Know my haere mai to the session of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Can AI Write a Book? Um, I just remind you, please, to double-check your phones are on silent. And um, a special thank you to the Royal Society, to Aparangi and Marsden Fund for their support of this session. We also encourage you to share your experiences on social media of Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhu Otamaki, but please just bear in mind the, your fellow audience members. What we'll do is, after the introduction and our discussion, um, we'll be having an extract from Catherine Chiji, and then we will go to a question time at the end of about 10 minutes, so anything, I'm sure it's going to generate a lot of discussion. There are two microphones here at the front, so if you do have a question, then please come up and um, deliver your question there. Now, um, one other thing, if there is a robot apocalypse, then just bear in mind where the exits are. No my haere mai to our panel. Laureate Fellow a world-leading researcher in AI and author of Machines Behaving Badly and Faking It, Toby Walsh. Please. Award-winning novelist and hot off the press, winner of the Ockham's Best Fiction Prize for her book, The Axman's Carnival, and her latest book, Pet, is about to come out, Catherine Chigi. and co-director of University of Waikato's Artificial Intelligence Unit, Kia ora Titaka Keegan. Now, to give a little context to this session, some months ago, uh, two or three months ago, I decided I would ask ChatGPT, relatively new to our collective consciousness at that point, to write an Ed's note for me. And I went back twice, and each time, the final version was really br what I would describe as brochure writing at its best. Um, it didn't make me feel, although you can never be too sure, that I, um, my job was in danger. Um, I'd like to use an example of AI's influence in the creative realm by citing an example of a Nick Cave fan, I'm sure you're all familiar with Nick Cave, who sent his um, idol a song written by ChatGPT. And Nick Cave was polite and considered as you would imagine, but he basically said, um, the apocalypse is well on its way. This song sucks. Catherine, I'd love to go to you first with this question as a writer. Um, is this the beginning of our nightmares? Does it fill your veins with ice? Um, I do feel a little bit threatened. I do feel as if, you know, maybe the flashy new girl's shifted in next door and she's got a Walkman and she's going to pick my friends off one by one. <laughs> Um, 
I was at the Featherston Booktown Festival last weekend and Guyon Espiner spoke there and he said that AI represents an existential threat to his profession and I thought that was, um, that was quite sobering. But I think um, for me really having, having now dabbled with chat GPT and seen what it can produce and what it can't produce, um, at the moment, I feel like my job is relatively safe. <laughs> um, I don't think that it can substitute um, a living, breathing human who is capable of nuance and playfulness and humour and those kind of knowing nods between writer and audience um, that... I like to um, embed in my fiction. Well, I think, Toby, we know that AI can write a book. You've written a lot about this in your own books. But I guess the question is, are they any good? And do we want it to? Well, I, th I think that you know, the technology is improving greatly as, as in front of our eyes. And part of it is we're actually draining it. So ChatGPT today is actually much better than it was two or three months ago because it's had all this extra input, all this extra feedback from us humans. So as, as usual, you know, it's our free labor that we're giving to them. So the, the, the quality of the writing, at least on the surface level, will get better and some of, some of it will. But, but I, you know, I think I agree with you. At the end of the day, it's not going to speak to us in the way that you know, great writing like yours does, which is that you know, it's all about the human experience, about falling in love, losing a loved one, facing your own mortality, all those great things that art speaks to. They're uniquely human experiences, because machines do not fall in love. They do not lose loved ones. They do never, they're never going to die. Those experiences, they, 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 they can write about them, but I don't think they're ever going to speak to us in the way that humans, other humans, because we share that humanity. So why do you think there is such an ex existential dread as you were talking about? But, then, that but there's a lot of mundane communication that we do. If you're, if you're writing advertising copy, it's not, it's, not write, it's not great writing, it's not great art. Uh, you can ask, I did, I asked ChatGPT to describe, you know, write me some copy for the next iPhone 16 and it did it perfectly, and it was like, yeah, I could imagine that was, that was the copy that, you know, if you're a copywriter, you can use that maybe to write your copy quicker. Actually, um, if I could just jump in for a minute there. Um, I noticed a post on Twitter just last week from a, a friend of mine, um, you know, a Twitter friend. We've never met in real life, but we interact a lot on Twitter. And she is a copywriter. That's her bread and butter, as well as a bit of editing. And she was putting the call out, saying, um, a lot of my potential clients are turning to AI now. My work is drying up. Is there any work out there? Anyone wants some copywriting done? Yeah. So it is affecting people's jobs um, in, in a real way. Yeah. Well, and also, I think... Titaka, just this week, the CEO of ChatGPT was talking at the Senate um, and warning that things could go really sideways. Now, this is a sort of hero invention, but I guess in terms of elections, in terms of how society is impacted, in terms of our children's 
future ability to do cr you know, critical thinking. Um, from your perspective, um, I know that you feel that it's a technology we should be excited about, and can you convince us of that, just <laughs> why? <laughs> Well, I, I think it's good that we should be aware of the limitations, and I think it's good that we should understand that it doesn't really know what it's writing. It's just good at forming sentences. Um, and I also, also think it's good that we should start thinking about regulation before these deaths. So like seatbelts came out after there were deaths, so to be thinking about it before a lot of the damage is done, I think is kind of good. There have been deaths. With AI. No, yes. with ChatGPT. With ChatGTP. Yes. There was, I mean, a warning, this is confrontational, but someone committed suicide. Mm. Ah. Well, perhaps it's a reminder of the importance of our connection to each other, and while it gives us the impression that we're very connected, in fact, it's putting us, making us further isolated, do you think, at its worst? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's doing that, but I think by not understanding how it's working, we are falsely believing that, you know, what it's giving us is true results. So mm. clearly, if someone's committing suicide because of something that I've got responses from ChatGTP, then it's it's not understanding. ChatGTP isn't, isn't understanding what it's saying. It's just stringing sentences together. So, yeah, I think that's a little bit of not really understanding how the technology works. And I think but that's... But you can't, you can't blame the, the person who was ha having mental distress, that he didn't understand that the technology was actually fooling him. Yeah, well, well, we should have, you know, wasn't blaming strict, stricter rules <laughs> yeah. in place because his psychiatrist, human psychiatrist, and his wife both said afterwards that they partly blamed the, the chatbot that mm. didn't... You know, if it had been a human there, they would have said, you need to seek you know, professional help, we need to look after you, not encourage him, as it seems to do. Well, that's, that's exactly at the seat of what we're talking... I mean, we're talking about creative writing and about books, but at the same time, we're talking about how really great literature can impact um, on society. It can change the way we see each other. It can make us feel closer and more connected, and that is obviously the skill of great writers like Catherine, but maybe when great black boxes are invented and they're fed a whole lot of numbers in it, we give it the PR as though it has the power, when in fact it never knew the words, it never knew how to create those words. It's given a whole lot of numbers that it turned by algorithms. We are feeding that, we invented it, we promote it, we're fearful of it, and we don't do the, the housework and the, and the mahi around that. I mean, is that essentially what you're saying, is that we have to look at it now and look at the potential dangers? Yeah, well, I, I think there's kind of three things that, that it's got going for it. One, that it responds really fast, right? If you ask it something, it's, it's seemingly an instant response. Two, it doesn't cost very much. It's free. And then three, it seemingly gives a good response. Right? So those three things that it's got going for it mean people are going to use it more and more because it's going to save them time. 
Um, and if I was a writer, and I'm, I'm not a writer, the only one on this panel here that hasn't written a book, um, but if I was a writer, then I would be thinking about how can I get a tool like this to cover all the mundane processes that involve the writing, maybe all of the the um, the, the arty, the um, art, the fakaro, the the um, feeling processes can't be left to a tool, but the mundane processes, you know, the the sentences, the structures, even the research about the topic that I'm going to you know write about, this is where a tool can really help, mm. and it can help a lot. Um, and it can give some good responses. We need to be careful with our responses, and it can do it fast, and it can do it for free. It's, it's worth saying they are actually trying to deceive us. So the fact that when you, if, you've, if you've ever used ChatGPT, and I encourage everyone, the audience is free, you can sign up and, um, and, and use it. Uh, it types out the answer slowly, and apparently I haven't used it on the app, but apparently even the app vibrates as though it's a person typing slowly. Mm. It could actually just give it to you in a flash. <laughs> the answer is already there. But the fact that it types the answer out encourages you to think, oh, that's like a person who's writing to me. It's a friend yeah. with the that, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. That was something I noticed too yeah. when I started having it, a play with it. As though it's thinking and then writing to you. I kind of looked on that, these words filling my screen with a, with a sick jealousy because I'm such a plotter when it comes to writing. And all. Right. But that's all deception. That's to yeah. make us feel it's more human than it is. Yeah. Well, Catherine, your protagonist in the Axman's Carnival is um, a magpie. Um, I mean, it's a, a tender, wildly funny, original concept. And this is not a spoiler, so um, fear not. But it also brings in the discussion of the seductive forces of social media, mm -hmm. which is not unrelated to what we're talking about, I believe. Um, we place things on a throne and we give it a crown, and then when it all turns, you know, sideways, um, we, it's unchecked. In that, do you see the parallels between ChatGPT and what you were talking about, or what you were writing about, rather, in the Axman's Carnival? Well, actually, when I was thinking about today's session and thinking about my magpie narrator, who, um, you know, is rescued as a chick, um, brought up on a remote farm, and um, being a magpie, they're incredible mimics, and he begins to learn how to speak. Um, but all he ever says aloud is recycled material. It's expressions that he hears um, the, the man and woman who are raising him say. It's expressions he hears on the radio, on the television, you know, on American cop shows. He's got a whole repertoire from that. Um, <laughs> all that he hears online. And so, in a way, he's an AI creature himself because he... You know, as far as the humans are concerned who hear him parroting, um, he's just repeating back to them these snippets that he's, you know, gleaned, as magpies do glean these little bits from here and there. Um, he has this other internal voice which the humans don't hear, which is the voice that the narrator hears, and that's the voice that's telling the story, and that's much more eloquent and um, self-aware. But... Yeah, you know, the, the humour in the book comes from his misunderstanding 
of the tool of language and the fact that he is just throwing back these um, expressions out of context um, at a moment often when coincidentally they'll be offensive or they'll cause the maximum irritation possible because he'll keep <laughs> repeating them or he'll do it in the middle of the night. So, you know, in that respect, he has the same kind of non-understanding as a tool like chat GPT in that he can, he knows the words, but he doesn't really understand context or doesn't understand um, the finer nuances of, of that language. Which is exactly why you should just relax and not worry about anything, because AI could never do that, right? They could <laughs> never do that. I mean, right now at the Writers' Festival in America, one of the key catch cries is that, you know, to the moguls, the studio moguls, is like, please don't use AI. And not only will that presumably have a, a wild and crazy impact on the creative realm and the richness of our culture, and the things that reflect our culture and, you know, um, can be prescient as your magpie, but also economically. I mean, do you see, Toby, any kind of, other than the obvious um, examples of how it's going to impact the creative realm, it goes beyond that to the social, to the economic, doesn't it? It does. I mean, never is a very strong word. As a scientist, I'm very... Okay. Reluctant to use. Chill on the never. Uh, I should use the word never to think that there are. Sometimes I think. I mean, I think there is the limit that I talked about at the start that they're not human and they'll never be human, and so they can't speak. But but in terms of there's a there's a really deep fundamental question that goes back hundreds of years, goes back before the invention of the computer, goes back to the 18th century, goes back to the very first computer programmer, Ada Lovelace which asks the sort of question I think you were hinting at in your never, which is, will the computers ever be creative? And you know, amazing, amazing woman. She was a f fantastic mathematician, the daughter of Lord Byron, working alongside Charles Babbage, who built the first, was trying to build, failed, trying to build the first mechanical computer. And she had such an amazing insight and asked um, a really profound question, which is, he, she said, you know, Babbage was building this computer to, to build to make artillery tables and astronomical tables and um, calculations to bit tables of numbers more accurately. And she said, well, wait a second. We could use these computers to make sentences. Those numbers could represent words. Those numbers could represent musical notes. They could represent dots in a picture. They could, so we could use this computer to do all these other things that no one, it was hundreds of years ahead of her time. I can't imagine how you know, uh, you know, how she had that, had that amazing idea, which was so ahead of the time. But then she also put forward the question, which is, but will they ever be creative? Or are they just doing what we tell them to do? And we still don't know the answer to that. Whether they're just going to be, you know, stochastic parrots. <laughs> <laughs> but we uh, like your magpie, mm. putting, piecing things together. Mm. Or is, is, there something, is there more something special in how we create you know, a story like that. I mean, it's interesting to say, where did the idea of the magpie come from mm. to you? Um, to think where, how do ideas come to us? I've, I've talked about this um, before, that I was casting around for an unexpected voice to tell the story with. Um, and I thought, well, I haven't ever um, used a non-human voice, so I want to have a non-human narrator. What did, could that did be? Did a magpie ever come into your life? Um, 
I, <laughs> not a magpie, but okay. birds have been a constant presence in my life. Um, there was a, an injured pigeon who came to live with us for, it seems like for years, but looking back, it was probably only for one year. And he came to our house and he had an obsession with getting inside, like Tama the magpie does. He decided that he wanted to live inside and I would come home from school and the pigeon would be asleep on my bed. And of course, we called him Pidgey Chidgey. Um, <laughs> So, so there's a little bit of biography in there. There definitely is, yeah. There are other sort of similar examples. But um, no, I was just thinking about a non-human creature who could talk. And so, of course, birds presented themselves as being the most obvious thing because they, they can actually talk even if they don't understand what they're saying. Yeah. Yeah, birds are remarkably smart. Yeah. People don't realise, especially the, um, crows and magpies. Oh. They're amazing. And Toby, well, you hang around in New Zealand long enough and you will have a magpie. Um, yeah. Attack. Have a magpie <laughs> experience, yeah. You know, we also do have a family Everybody story um, about a bird that did seem to have some knowledge or a kind of a warped sense of humour the way that Tama does. So, And this fed my book as well, thinking about it, that my grandfather had this budgie. Um, as a younger man, he was trying to teach it how to count, um, and, it, and it kept refusing until my mother's mother, who was um, quite disapproving of the Chidgees because they were non-Catholic, they weren't farmers and they had no money. Anyway, she was visiting on a rare occasion and out of nowhere in the middle of, you know, quite a stilted conversation, the bird suddenly began to count and said, one, two, three, four, five, you silly bugger. <laughs> <laughs> and I, th I swear that was deliberate. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the fun thing is, I, th I say my, in my most recent book, which is that I think we should think of artificial intelligence not like our human intelligence, that's a, that's a natural trait that we, uh, that we fall into, but we should think of it like avian intelligence. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the other intelligence on the planet. Mm -hmm. It's quite different than ours. Um, and that would be, we would be less, mis we would be less, we, we'd have a better understanding of how these things behave and where they go wrong if we realised, well, maybe it's just, you know, like a smart magpie or yeah. an octopus or what are the, mm. well, the other types of intelligence that we can see around us on the planet. Well, I mean, are nothing like our human intelligence. Yeah. So it's all in the PR, essentially. If we gave it a different name, it might make... Yeah, I say AI should stand for alien intelligence. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tetaka, though, this isn't... I think this leads us to an interesting question I know you've talked about before. Um, we've talked about the, the layers and things that are missing from the AI experience. And particular reference, you, you talk about chat GPT being scary good at te reo. And this has implications for tikanga Māori and te reo. I imagine that is because of the experience that you have when you're learning te reo you would not get from a robot. Uh, there's a... There's a, a whole bunch of things that are, are a little bit concerning. Um, the, the first thing clearly is that um, ChatGPT is very good for Te Reo Māori. Um, and so, so that's, that's concerning on a number of levels. The, the, the first level is, well, how did it get so good at being able to speak Te Reo Māori? Where did it get its data from? You know, Because um, the groups that I'm associated with are really particular in protecting Māori data, this Māori data sovereignty movement. So how does this one particular um, AI um, bot become so reasonably good at te reo Māori 
and, and that's why well, we have to ask where does the data come from and it comes from social media um, and it's well that's what I think it comes from social media and it's because a lot of our um, younger people are so freely speaking to Reo Māori and sharing to Reo Māori on social media not realising the implications that there's other foreign agents out there that are scraping this tool and then they're using it to build these engines. Um, but then you could say, well, isn't that kind of good? Isn't it good that it speaks to Reo Māori so well? Um, but there's a concern, um, A, we've lost control of how it speaks to Reo Māori. It should be Māori language experts that have that control, not some overseas agent, shall we say. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is um, a lot of profit will be generated sooner or later. At the moment, everything is free, but sooner or later, um, these kind of tools generate profit, large profit. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure none of that profit is going to go back to the, the, the sources of te reo Māori. Um, but perhaps more scaringly to me is um, it's so good and it's so quick and it's so fast that that um, a lot of Māori speakers, especially new Māori speakers, young Māori speakers are going to start using it and they're going to get good, good responses so they're going to use it some more. And the, the concern is our language will change to become more like a chat GPT reo Māori than a traditional reo Māori. Mm. Um, so so that's, that's a worry, that's, that's a, a serious concern. Um, but despite that, I'm all for encouraging Māori people, Māori speakers to still use it. So. Well, I suppose that would go apply to indigenous cultures around the world, you know. Do, is it, without being sort of too crass, is it sort of cheapening? Yeah, it's cheapening. It's, you know, theft of, you know, property theft maybe, but it can't be theft because... That's the social media playbook, though. Yeah, we're willingly... <laughs> Our people are really putting this, this information, this knowledge, this taonga in an environment where it can, can be taken and used and reduplicated. Um, but then what I think we should do, which is why I encourage people to use it, um, and I think it's probably the same for writers too, I think writers should use it as much as possible uh, because there will be opportunities where we can reshape it and redefine it so, so rather, rather than have it produce its real Māori, we as Māori groups, Māori iwi specifically, with our own databases and, and with our own language resource, refine it, reshape it, so that the, the real it's producing is more authentic. Mm -hmm. So I think there's opportunities there. Um, I think it's such a powerful tool and it's so available. I think there's opportunities there um, that we, we need to be aware of and be at the forefront of leading, really. Mm, and I guess we have to remember that we are in control of it, you know. It mm. isn't otherwise, yeah, it just it becomes it existential. Um, well, it's, it's really we've given exciting. it high status, haven't we? We've given it, you know. It, it's really exciting, though, to see how it's not just the big tech companies like OpenAI and Microsoft and Google, but there's a huge, great flowering of activities in, in the open source community, in the startup community, picking up these tools. And it is very democratized in the sense that mm. 
um, increasingly you can, you know, there's no secrets, there's no, no technical secrets to what to do. And so lots of people now are doing really, you know, we're seeing a, a, a real Cambrian explosion of, of activity in the space where people are picking up the tools and, and, and using them to do lots of things and, and squeezing them down so you can actually run them on your laptop. You don't need a, a, a supercomputer to run them on. So um, it is a, a really exciting, innovative moment in time where you're seeing um, huge excitement and huge innovation happening in front of our eyes. Mm. But maybe we have to be very wary of the accuracy because even though it's getting better and better all the time and building muscle, at the moment it doesn't reference your, it doesn't cross-reference anything. So you have to be careful that what it's actually giving us is even true. I, um, I conducted a little exercise in vanity for the, for the session, not the short story, but um, I asked it for a biography of me. And um, for the first couple of paragraphs, it was pretty much spot on. Oh, I was born on the 12th of February instead of the 8th of April, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but it got the year right. It got the name of my first couple of books right and various details of my early career. And then paragraph, paragraph three... In addition to her novels, Chidji has also published a collection of short stories, Various Pets Alive and Dead. <laughs> <laughs> Have you killed any pets? <laughs> and a non-fiction book about language found in translation, Many Meanings on a North Atlantic Isle. <laughs> well, who says AI doesn't have ideas? I mean... Yeah. <laughs> Um, I wonder whether it's a good time to segue to the example that you we talked about earlier. Oh, sure. Um, if yeah. you could sort of introduce that and explain how that came about, I'd love that. So I was um, commissioned to write a short story because it's 100 years this year since the death of Catherine Mansfield, um, our probably um, most revered short story writer, so I was commissioned to write a short story that began with um, some of her words, and I could choose what they were. And so I chose a quote uh, from a letter that she'd written to her husband, um, and that quote was, I think of you often, especially in the evenings when I'm on the balcony and it's too dark to write or to do anything but wait for the stars. So I decided I'd riff on that because it seemed to me although she's not speaking about Monton, it seemed to me to be talking about Monton where she lived in the south of France and um, where I lived for a little while um, writing. So I thought I would read you the first few lines of my story and also the first few lines of the ChatGPT story um, when I asked ChatGPT to, I'll, I'll read the instructions that I, that I gave it, and you can decide which one is mine and which one is AI's? <laughs> and you can also decide which one is better writing. Now, Tutaka and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and he said, be careful, you might not get the answer that you want. Well, and, and maybe you could, at the end, we'll, we'll say, and indicate by applause which one you think is the better one. So, yeah. Okay, so my instruction um, to chat GPT, um, my short story is written in... 10 parts, so I said, write a short story in 10 parts in the style of Catherine Chidji about a woman having an affair in Monton, beginning with these words. And then I gave it the 
get the Catherine Mansfield quote. So I'll read you in no particular order <laughs> the two options. I think of you often, especially in the evenings when I am on the balcony and it's too dark to write or to do anything but wait for the stars. The salty air of Monton reminds me of your embrace and the sound of the waves crashing against the shore echoes the rhythm of my heart beating faster when I think of you. I am here in this little town on the French Riviera, away from my husband and family, consumed by the burning desire that has taken hold of me. Okay, that's option one. <laughs> option two. I think of you often, especially in the evenings when I am on the balcony and it's too dark to write or to do anything but wait for the stars. I can't see the water, but I know it's there, soft and slow. We bathed in it that last day, you and I, when the dusk hung heavy as cloth of gold and the town began to slip its moorings. We might have drifted for hours, our fingers sifting the current, your calf brushing my hip, until we were no longer ourselves but the lilt of the ocean, no longer ourselves but the falling calls of unknown birds, the shift and tilt of the distant shore. So. I, I think they like the second one. <laughs> I think we do. Is that a hard yes for the second one? <laughs> it was an interesting exercise. Um, you know, I, I asked it again to see if it would get any better. And, um, <laughs> and the, um, the second option for the opening was, I won't read the Catherine Mansfield one again, but the Mediterranean breeze is warm and the scent of Bougainvillea is intoxicating. I am on Monton and I am having an affair. So it was quite wooden. Yeah, and it, was, it did use um, figurative language, but it was invariably cliched and, and very expected. And, you know, it's, it's a solid B minus. If a student of mine handed that in, that's the thing, though. That's the worrying thing, is that it's competent writing. Mm. It's not mm. a fail. It's a B minus. And, and as an educator, that worries me. Mm. I was going to ask you, well, in, in, in your realm, you may also um, come across this too, but when you're dealing with young people and, again, that critical thinking and teaching, do, has it been obvious to you at any point? Are, are you sort of on alert for that? I mean, obviously, there's software that educational institutions have to give them a red flag, but... Never work. That never work. Never work. Yeah, no, I mean, at Waikato, we're sort of trialling it, aren't we? Yeah, but the, the, um, the opinion of the computer science department is there's no way you can detect it. There's no software you can create that can detect it, really. Yeah. It's really got to be a human... It's, it's an arms race. So every time I've got a better detector, I can use that to build a better thing to produce. Mm. Mm. We put them in mm. competition with each other, and then I'll get better synthetic text. Mm. Well. And, and then the other thing is, you know, this, this was taken at this time. It'd be interesting to see what happens six months from now. Well, three months from now, six months from now, and then if we came back in a year, it'd be an interesting exercise to do it again. Although we should compliment the audience. You did, you did get the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are still better than ChatGPT. Yeah, <laughs> it's a quality audience. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I'm scared to think of what's going to happen in an hour. I mean, it's probably, <laughs> our cars are probably being towed and AI is probably setting up a hot dinner date with Elon Musk. I mean, who knows? <laughs> These things are, they're so, progressing fast. So I had a quote recently, and actually recently when I was with Toby, and it was, um, nothing, ever is, nothing ever is created by a pessimist. You know, good things are created by optimists. So, you know, I, I, I don't think we should be scared I think we should be aware, and then I think we should look how can we use it for our benefit. And as it improves and changes, what aspects of it can we utilise for our benefit? I mean, that's what we do with technology. Technology is for our benefit. Mm. And then when we realise it's killing people, well, let's put some brakes on it or let's put some regulations on it. But, yeah, now, even though, like, in terms of real Māori, there's a whole bunch of concerns we have you know, so mine to, you know, my, my Māori language colleagues is don't be afraid of it, let's use it, let's utilise it and let's shape it so that it gets us and it gets our language further. So. Well, Toby, you had a really interesting example of the literary um, contest in Japan where this was a wee while ago where the there were submissions that were written by AI and the judges couldn't tell. This was 2016 or something, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, they, they did encourage to, to have both uh, humans and computers write um, and um, it, it uh, got through the first race. So it's actually quite a, a successful competition. It gets lots of hundreds of entries every, every year in Japan. And um, one of the stories that got through was... I mean, the interesting thing about that story was it was really co-written between a human and a computer. So they, they used the tool, um, but there was a lot of human input. A lot of the ideas and the characters were provided by the, the humans in it. I um, mean, it was quite an ominous story because I, I, I didn't try to remember the last line, but it, it began was when, when the humans realized um, all the writing stopped. Mm. Yeah, that was brilliant. But do you think, in a sense, we don't we we say it's great? We shouldn't be fearful of, fearful of it. It's ex an exciting point in our history, but we don't know that because what do we we don't know what it can give us? I mean, I guess you could say, if it has a real benefit for the greater good, for society, for the creative realm, for medicine, for um, social issues, but we we are hoping it kind of against hope, aren't we? Because it's still in an experiment stage. There's no evidence to suggest it's any good at all. Is there? Well, if you look around this room that we're all sitting in today, it is the product of human intelligence. I mean, the, everything in there, this building, the lights, the electricity, all of that is the sum total of... of our remarkable ability to invent and shape the universe around us. And what we're trying to do, ultimately, myself and, and my colleagues trying to do in the field, is build greater intelligence. And, and hopefully, you know, we've done it in the past with machines that amplified our muscles, and we, and we can do so much more because we've got those mechanical assistants in our lives. And what if we've got machines that could amplify our minds? What we could solve cancer, we could solve poverty. There, there, you know, the, the, the things that, that that trouble human existence could perhaps be solved. And so, you know, I'm 
I get up in the morning not worrying about some of the issues we talk about, worrying that we're going to put um, writers out of work, write, copywriters out of work, worrying that we are, um, our languages are being stolen in front of our eyes and how that's going to work out. But equally optimistic in the longer term that the only reason we've got to, to live the comfortable lives that we live today. And you know, don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, we live like kings and queens of, a, of 200 years ago. We have machines that wash our clothes, machines um, the, the, that um, wash our dishes. We, 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 we live very comfortable lives, really. We don't die of un unnecessary diseases that we used to die of because we used our intelligence to fix that. And we face the possibility of having potentially you know, a really great, possibly even more intelligent assistant to help us on the way. I do wonder, though, it wasn't... didn't manage to fend off COVID, though, did it? <laughs> that, well, OK. <laughs> um, he, uh, there were plentiful... You know, this is the same thing with the climate crisis, right? Scientists have been warning for... You know, this TEDx talk that Bill Gates gave 20 years in, in advance saying, this is one of our existential threats. Scientists have been warning about this. We've had, you know, pandemics in the past, and... Um, the same with climate change. We're not very good at listening to scientists. Again, that's proved time and time that's, again. But, but that's, so that's, the, that's a human failing, not a failing of, of science. Yeah. And I suppose, again... Well, uh, it maybe it is a failing of science. Maybe <laughs> scientists need to communicate a bit more. Well, and perhaps that's what it comes down to, is the ability to communicate what these things are about. Which is I mean, why I we think, need writers. Yeah, why <laughs> we need writers. And, and perhaps the media is at fault here, which, you know, um, guilty as charged, Your Honour. But we tend to seize on an idea and a, a new thing and get really excited, but without necessarily asking those critical questions along the way and then get surprised when it shocks us and really, you know, doesn't match up. I mean, this discussion centred on books and the arts... Um, I, I remember going to MoMA in 2019 and standing in front of um, a Van Gogh painting and just hadn't necessarily been a wild fan of his work, respect and loved it, loved it, but didn't expect that I would stand in front of this painting five deep and just start crying. And it came out of nowhere. I didn't go in thinking I'm going to get really emotional when I see this. It just happened. And those things, are you concerned, um, Catherine, maybe that in the perceived gains that we get from technology, that we're, we're, so, we're such in such a rush to kind of, you know, touch them, feel them, see them, that we're missing out on the 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 tissue of human experience that's but that nothing can replicate. Uh, yeah, I mean that's why we turn to books is because we want to feel some kind of connection with the creator of that book. We want that kind of human engagement and and that's what I really enjoy um, including in my novels is those moments where I feel like I'm speaking through the pages to the reader, and I know that if they're paying attention, they'll understand me. And and so, you know, an example of that in the Axemen's Carnival is where um, the the couple take on a viral marketing expert um, 
to help them with all this fame that Tama is suddenly attracting. And um, when she arrives, Tama, the bird, is hiding. And so Marnie says, you know, come, come on, come out. Um, Lakshmi's flown down from Auckland. And Tama says to the reader, I doubted that, but I didn't say anything. <laughs> and so the reader knows that he's misunderstood that expression. He doesn't know. So it's a moment of dramatic <laughs> irony where there's, that, like I say, there's that connection, that moment of playfulness between me, the writer, and you, the reader, and that's something that AI can never reproduce, I think. Mm. Yeah. And your, the, the people who read your literature, read your books, what sort of... Um, I mean, it's a it's a two way street. I would imagine it must that feedback and uh, from your um, fans must also inform the layers of your um, your work. And you you can't work in isolation either, and have that sort of cold blooded experience of you know. No, you, you can't. And this morning, at, um, my session when I was talking about the Axman's Carnival in Question Time, a woman. Um, came up with a really astute question about the, um, the parallels in the book between the relationship between human siblings and the bird siblings. And I actually hadn't thought about that. I hadn't kind of lay, laid that in the book as some kind of pattern or echo. But as soon as she said it, I thought, yeah, that, that's true, actually. And so it is. It's a two, two-way street. And I love getting that response from readers um, about how they've thought about my book and they've kind of... Um, decoded it mm. yeah well on that note um we're getting to the point where we can go to the audience um to you all if you have any questions um again the microphone is here and here um would anyone like to kilda uh hiya first of all the declaimer uh I'm not exactly pro AI. Um, my writing process is about as archaic as you get. It's a pen and paper and <laughs> 90,000 words of scribbles. But um, I suppose my thinking would be that it's kind of a matter of time or inevitability before AI gets to a stage where, you know, the writing is nearly picture perfect and probably better than I could write or, or even a masterpiece in terms of aesthetically. And I suppose question of two parts is, to me, it takes away the point of it. So, you know, even if it writes like with perfect imagery and figure of language and, and, you know, it's a beautiful book, it's divided the struggle of creativity and of people deliberating over this word or that exactly fit there and whatever. Um, so how do we get people to see that? But then secondary to that, does that really matter if 90% of readers are just re reading a book to escape, and AI does it perfectly, doesn't really matter who or what wrote it, if they can achieve that means of escape. Thank you. Do you, um, you know, I was thinking about the, the kind of book where maybe there is a place for um, AI-generated text, and I was thinking about the, the series of books that my seven-year-old daughter has been absolutely obsessed with and she's, she seems to be finally growing out of those, thank God, but they're, um, 
<laughs> you know, the lost puppy, the missing puppy, the abandoned kitten, mm-hmm. the, you know, the rescued kitten. I, the parents in the audience are probably <laughs> horribly familiar with these titles as well. And, the, you know, there's just an unending supply of them at the library. Maybe they have already been written by AI. Yes. But, you know, that kind of really formulate. T- text it feels like at bedtime I'm reading the same book for the 30th time (laughs) and it's just the puppy in this one is called something different from the kitten in the last one um they make my eyes bleed but you know maybe there's a place for that kind of generation I don't or perhaps when you and this not to criticize the airport novel at all it has a yeah it's a fine thing when you need one but maybe there is a place for the AI AI airport novel, Mm -hmm. you know, something that is very formulaic by nature Undemanding, yeah yeah. yeah. That's an entry drug though to get people hooked on the real thing. Exactly. (laughs) Is that a bad thing? No, exactly, I I totally agree yeah, yeah Uh, Sorry, and we have a a question over here Kia ora ora. Um, People like Ray Kurzweil have said that AI is the greatest threat to humankind ever. Now I realize that at the moment we're at the frontier of AI, that we're only beginning and already people are perceiving it as a threat. I've heard that perhaps it can infiltrate medical records, it can take over websites, and also I'm pleased to hear that you are talking about safeguards around AI. Specifically, I really wonder what kind of safeguards could we impose on AI when AI is open to the entire world? Good question. Titaka? No, no, no. I think it's difficult to know at the moment because it's difficult to know the reach of AI. Um, I would be surprised if AI was taking over medical records, for example, but, you know, who, who knows? Um, in, in terms of what we've got now, um, and perhaps ChatGPT is the best example, we've got a, a tool that can reproduce sentences, but it, it's not an identity, it's, it's not a person. Um, for me, it's people being aware of what the tool is and how it's working. Once you lose that awareness, once you believe this is an identity, once you don't really, um, and I was going to say, once you don't understand the technology, but the technology is kind of hard to understand, but once you don't really see how it's working and what it's doing, that's when there's dangers, I think. Mm. Interesting. Could I add something to that, which is I... You, you hear these warnings, and certainly there are things I think we should be worried about. We should be worried about how our democratic discourse is being um, mm. destroyed by some of these algorithms and, and, and the way that our society is becoming much more polarised and, and social media and the algorithms are help, helping to drive that. But um, you, you hear people, and they, they're typically academics who prize intelligence, who warn us of the dangers of intelligence. But... Um, if I look around the planet, the people who are in charge are not the smart people. <laughs> so intelligence does, hasn't helped humans, it seems, to, to be in charge and to get power in the planet. So I think the people who worry about superintelligence um, think a bit too highly about intelligence. <laughs> Always thought it was really overrated myself. Yes. <laughs> 
The discussion so far is, is centered on should authors be concerned about AI. My question is, should the editors of the world be more concerned ah, about are, AI? Are you an editor, sir? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> Do you have an editor you like or dislike? Well, I, like many, I'm a struggling writer, and the next stage is finding an editor. And is that in my future sometime that I can get an AI to edit for me? Mm. I have, so I don't know if there are any editors in the room, but I have, I've, I've written a couple of books now, and I am absolutely amazed by my editor. Yeah. Uh, all they do is they, mostly they delete things. <laughs> and the book... <laughs> And, this, and it reads so much better. It's like, how did they do that? Yeah. Occasionally they move things around a bit. They move, yeah. things, move things forward. They think, oh, that was much better. And th and they're absolutely amazing. So I know I'm, I'm, I would hate for edit my editor to be... Well, wasn't it a Bill Manhigh who said, just uh, don't be too attached to your darlings? Perhaps that's the... I mean, I, I have so much... You know, I'm, I would call myself a scientist, but now having written some books, I have so much more respect for the whole process... Mm. Uh, of all the other people who get to help you write the book. Yeah, I have a, a very kind of human relationship with my human editor and I can't imagine being edited by a machine because it's a conversation. Um, it's not just, you know, take this out, end of, end of discussion. It's, um, you know, take this out, question mark. Um, what do you think about that? Or could could you express this differently? Could you condense this for, for clarity or for more impact. It's, it's very much a two-way street. Yeah. Mm. Interesting uh, question. Thank I, you. I, I have a student that um, I was helping with his PhD and I had to um, review his works and his English wasn't very good. And it was almost, and you should never have, you should never be in the situation where you're supervising a PhD student who can't write sentences. <laughs> um, but I would have loved to have ChatGPT to go through his sentences because I would have taken his content, I would have made them in proper English sentences, and then my, the most of my thoughts and energy could have been on well, what he was actually saying, not how was he trying to say what he was actually saying. So mm. I think time and place, maybe. Sure, yeah. And perhaps academic text versus creative writing. Yeah. Kia yeah. yeah. Do you have a question? Um, what hasn't been mentioned so far is, <clears throat> uh, is that there is no such thing as artificial intelligence. There is only living intelligence that we and other creatures have in varying ways. And uh, to use a Trumpian word, all else is fake. Uh, the danger is that we make, we are still able to be seduced by the fake. Mm. You want to discuss that? I'm throwing it out there. Well, uh, thank you very much. The title of my new book, out in October, is called Faking It, <laughs> Artificial Intelligence in the Human World, and it tries to answer your questions there. Okay. Plug there from Toby's <laughs> new book. <laughs> <laughs> but, you're, but you're right, we're often seduced, yeah. we're often fooled by things that seem much more intelligent. ChatGPT, I have an example where it fails to count to two. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really is spectacularly dumb in some respects, <laughs> but equally very convincing in others. I mean, it, you know, it was a B minus, as you say. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. so, so we're easily fooled. 
Um, I don't know that you're intelligent, sir. I'm, obviously, you are, obviously, Bavard, but, you know, um, other people in the audience, I don't know they're intelligent, but, you know, it's a reasonable assumption to suppose, because you say the right things, that you must have your experience, your intelligence must be similar to mine. And we, we're very quick to do that to machines as well, but very quickly to attribute greater intelligence. That's, that's going to be a real challenge a real, for society as a whole, that we, we're quickly assuming these machines are much more capable, much more intelligent than the modest. I, would give them, I wouldn't say that they're not, unin, not, not lacking in all intelligence. They're, they're modestly intelligent at the moment, at best at the moment. And are they emotionally? I mean, there's lots oh. of different kinds oh, yes. of intelligence, so you know. All the different facets to intelligence. Yeah. Emotional intelligence, lacking in emotional intelligence, social intelligence, lacking in social intelligence. <laughs> they're, you know, they're Spock-like in their, you know, they can do uh, serious, serious mathematics and things well, but they, they don't understand. They don't have emotions, so how are they going to understand? We, we can always reflect on ourselves and say, well, how would, that, how would I feel if someone said that to me? Well, a machine can't reflect to itself as to how would I feel because it doesn't have feelings. Mm. It's not the same stuff as us. Thank you for your question, your, your observation. Hi, hi, hello. <laughs> I want to just uh, check my understanding that, that the challenge right now is that we have generative AI and that generative AI doesn't have the same parameters that we that a robot who's going to be cleaning your house or building a car has it it creates its own dynamic if it says that it needs if it needs more information it will find it whoops i didn't mean to do that you can um, take it right <laughs> off if you like yeah that that it will find it and so i wonder if if we're talking about like like you mentioned uh, you know if, it, if we find that we're having a problem, then, then we can start putting some of the brakes on it. But my question is, if we let it go and it learns from us, and it's the thing about it, as far as I understand, is that it learns faster than we can possibly learn. So it's a baby right now, you know, and it makes these stupid mistakes. But if it learns enough and it doesn't have those barriers to hold it in place, can we hold it in place when we go, uh-oh? Very good question. It's <laughs> a very good question. <laughs> mm. Yeah, um, I, haven't, I don't have an answer for that question mm. right now, right today. So. Uh, w w one answer to your question is, it depends on us. It depends on us how much, uh, the technical term, how much agency, how much ability we give the machines to, to do physical stuff in our worlds. And at the moment, you know, maybe we're, give, we're, giving, you know, we're, we're giving them too much agency on social media to, to change how we think and how we vote. And maybe we should think a bit more carefully about where we allow them. Because it, at the end of the day, you can always turn, turn them off. I mean, there, there is... It, the, the, there's, there's nothing stopping us deciding. It's the question we don't ask often enough in our lives, which is, there's a, a technology, it's got great applications, it's also got misapplications, ways it can be misused. Where should we use it and where should we not use it? That's the question mm. that we never ask. Well, and also I think it forces us to look at ourselves as human beings and see how we are in the world. And we may well get a reflection of that in this thing we've created, which 
could be pretty awful, really, when you think of how human beings behave. I think we've got time for one more question and then we'll have to um, wrap it up. Yeah, just following on the uh, subject of education, given how much this technology is improving, how do we know that five to ten years' time, um, students, particularly university level, will be submitting work that's not their own and earning degrees for work that actually is, is, isn't their own? Mm. So we won't know. So we'll have to test students by sitting down with students and getting them to physically answer because if they submit some work, we won't know. We won't be able to tell. An oral examination is a perfect way of, of understanding whether someone, having a conversation with the person. Equally, um, I mean, maybe we're going to have to be, as you know, I speak as a university educator, someone who sets exams, maybe we're going to have to be a bit more uh, careful about what we ask. We ask people to write essays today, not because there's a shortage of essays. Yeah. <laughs> But because that's a lazy way of testing their understanding of a topic, their ability to think critically, maybe we should test those things more directly, mm. ways that the chat GPT can't answer. And I think that is the, that's all we have time for. I'm really sorry, sir. Um, perhaps it's just a reminder that we do not lose faith in humanity. And um, on that note, I'd like to say, Norera, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Big hand to our panellists. Thank you. Well done. And to you.